as Darren mentioned, I had the joy to be here in April. It was a joy. And if you remember, one of the things we talked about when I was here in April is kind of an overlay I always like to put on when we're studying Scripture passages. And I, I broke it down very succinctly into three C's. Copter, car, and Christ. Copter being the big overview, the flyover, so we can see the beauty of the whole plan. Then we would dive into the car view or we'd get to see the individual lawns and the stores as we're, we're driving through the story. And in the end, our, our ultimate destination is to see Jesus Christ. Through whom and for whom all things were created. Um, for the entire books of the Scriptures point to and find their fulfillment in. So what I'd like to do before we actually begin is I'd like to start at that copter view. One of the things I would like to do is define some terms. I'm going to come down here. I, I just don't feel comfortable up there yet, but I'll come. First thing I want to define is the word sovereign. We're going to use the term God is sovereign. I'm sure you've heard it. Um, you've heard people preach on it, talk about it. What does it mean that God is sovereign? Well, what it means when we say God is sovereign is He is all-powerful, and nobody has... Oh, sorry, can you stand up for one second? <clears throat> now, this is an example. This may not be true, okay? But this is an example. I am stronger than SR. <laughs> so what happens is, if I want to move him, I can. Because I'm stronger. If I want him to go this way, he goes this way. If I want him to come this way, this way, and so on and so forth. Thank you, young man. Nobody can do that to God. There's nobody stronger than God. Nobody moves God. Nobody affects God. Psalm 115, verse 3 God says, God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. What God does has nothing to do with anybody else. So God is sovereign. Nobody determines what God will do. Alright? Next word I'm going to throw at you is a scary word. The word is Lucifer. Ah. Lucifer was the highest created angel who determined at some point in history that he was going to be as great as God, if not greater. And again, God is sovereign and he created Lucifer and he said, get out of heaven, Lucifer. And Lucifer comes to earth. Now, we know Lucifer by different terms. Some people call him Satan, which just means adversary or enemy. Some people call him the devil, which just means he, he accuser, liar. Alright, so God is sovereign. And we have Lucifer, Satan, the devil. The next thing I want to throw at you is this phrase, and you'll hear this phrase all over Christianity, Man is fallen. Well, what does that mean? Well, I'm standing, so it's not a physical fallen right now, because I can walk. What it means is man was created in the perfect image of God, and man sinned and fell from that perfect image of God. That's all that means. So let's combine our last two things, Lucifer and fallenness of man. So Lucifer comes in, takes the form of a serpent, and tempts Eve to disobey God. And what's important to get out of this, this is kind of why I've started this way, because this will help us understand what's going on in the passages we're going to study. We need to be aware of what was the exact temptation that Lucifer tempted Eve with. It wasn't the fruit. Probably it was beautiful, shiny, looked delicious. It was the temptation that if you eat this, you will be just like God. 
And if you remember, that was the exact desire that got Lucifer kicked out of heaven. So Eve eats of the apple and gives it to Adam. He eats of the apple and they are fallen from the perfect image of God. And now every human being that is born is born in their sin and sinning like them. But what is their particular sin? When I say we're all sinners, every one of us, we're all sinners, what is our primary sin? It is this. We want to be the God. Very simply. That's our, that's our primary sin. It's called self-idolatry. And we're all born into it. Now, some people come to me and say, no, 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 my little baby, actually, my little baby is just clean slate, uh, white and pure. If anything goes wrong with my baby, it's because I have messed them up. And I always say, may I ask you one question? And, and depending on the person, sometimes I, I might get stuff thrown at me, sometimes I'll get giggles, whatever it is. I say, what age did you teach your child how to lie? Not in a million years would I teach my... You don't need to. It just comes naturally to them. That's how we naturally are. Okay, so man has fallen, and man is naturally wants to be the God. We're, we're self-idolaters. I determine what truth is. I determine what's right. If I have this, if I have this little uh, uh, image of God in my head, it's one who excuses my sin and he's okay with everything I do. But boy, that guy there, he's going to go to hell. Last point, and then we're going to go. God, in his wisdom, and because he's sovereign, remember, controls all things, in his wisdom, he allowed Satan a tremendous amount of freedom when he's on the earth. If you look in the New Testament, some of the words that are used to describe Lucifer are pretty shocking. God, lower G, God of this world. The prince of the power of the air. 1 John 5.19 says this. This is pretty stunning. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Whoa. So, here's my summation from everything I just taught you. Just, and then, then it'll help you understand where we're going next. God creates all things. He's sovereign. Satan rebels, gets kicked, in, kicked to earth, where he is given a tremendous amount of leeway to construct this world system that we live in right now. I'm going to refer to it as the kingdom of darkness. And the kingdom of darkness is constructed to ensnare human beings and keep them in the darkness. But it's not real hard to do because we naturally love the darkness because we want to be the God. That's it. If you've ever been to a big airport, I, I just taught at the middle school retreat, so my poor daughter is hearing all of the same metaphors. But that's okay. If you've ever been to the airport, the coolest thing at the airport to me, um, and it used to be as a kid and, and it still has remaining as an adult, is that moving sidewalk. I love that moving sidewalk. So either I can just sit there and move, and I'm like, wow, I'm moving as fast as those people, and I'm exerting no energy. This is awesome. Or I can feel like I'm, I'm like at hyper-speed walking, I walk along with it, and I'm just blowing right by those people who aren't on it. I love that. That's what the kingdom of darkness is like. We naturally are walking on it, and the kingdom of darkness has us walking towards something, and we walk right along with it. It's very natural. At the end there, though, unfortunately, isn't the terminal that takes us to Hawaii. It's eternal death. So God in His wisdom allows Satan to construct this kingdom that ensnares fallen human beings. But then in His ultimate wisdom, doesn't end the story there. He's going to send a king. 
and a kingdom that will defeat the kingdom of darkness and rescue people from being ensnared, enslaved to this kingdom of darkness. And He will do it in ways that are unlike the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of darkness loves power. If you want to be important in this world right now, be powerful, be wealthy, and you've made it. My parish eternally, oh, he won't tell you that, but you've made it. Where God crashes into history through Jesus Christ in the person of Christ and says, my kingdom, which will defeat that powerful kingdom, will be based on suffering, loving sacrificially, and by the death of its king. We're going to examine this in New Testament times. But everything we learn here is still happening today. It's part of the reason why God allowed what we're going to read to be part of His Scriptures, because it's going to serve as a model of things that are still occurring today. Some of the variables might have changed, but the battle is still there. Okay, if I haven't thoroughly confused you yet, turn with me to Acts chapter 17. We are going to look at what happens when the kingdom of light crashes in to the kingdom of darkness. Because remember, naturally the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So when we bring the gospel somewhere, we're coming as bearers of the kingdom of light. And unfortunately, they don't throw parades for us. What we're going to do here in Acts chapter 17, and then we're going to examine 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, is we are going to see the kingdom of light coming into the darkness, how the darkness responds, and how God uses those responses to perfectly accomplish His purposes. Who has a bulletin? Because this is how, this is, they would throw me out of seminary if they knew this. I forgot what the title of my message was exactly. Here it is. I want you to notice if, if you have a bulletin, there are two words that seem opposite of one another purpose and rioting. Now, some people riot for an ultimate purpose. Um, we're going to riot because I don't want this mayor to be in charge of this town anymore, so we're going to riot. But the point is, in rioting, there's chaos. There's disorder. There's lawlessness. There's a lack of purpose. But God is sovereign. He controls all things. There's nothing man can do to foil His plan. He even uses the wicked, rebellious rioting of man to accomplish His purposes. That's how great He is. So we're going to examine... Thank you. We're going to examine what kind of purposes can God possibly have when we examine a particular church, the church in Thessalonica, that's born in absolute riots. Okay. Turn with me, if you're not already there, to first, or to Acts 17. We're going to read the first nine verses. Two passages, two points. First passage, Acts 17, a church born in a riot. Then, the second passage, 1 Thessalonians, the kingdom purposes of that church being born in the riot. Acts 17, beginning in verse 1. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. 
saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd in the city. They stirred up the crowd in the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and others, they had received them. So Acts 17 picks us up on Paul's second missionary journey. The second missionary journey, if you wanted to study according to his journeys, goes from Acts 15.40 to the beginning of Acts 18.23. That's his second journey. So Paul takes Silas, remember him and Barnabas split, if you've read the story, and they, go to, they, they leave from Syria and Antioch, and they travel through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. They go to Derby and Lystra. At Lystra, there was a disciple by the name of Timothy who was held in high regard by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. They make their way to Phrygia and Galatia, but the Holy Spirit prevents them from going into Asia. From there, they go on to Philippi, a Roman garrison town. And obviously, Paul writes a letter to Philippians to that church that gets established. And after that, they go to Amphipolis, Apollonia, and come to Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a big free city, a Roman province in northern Greece. It was a major port. So if it was a major port, that meant there was a lot of traffic through there. And a lot of traffic in the kingdom of darkness means a lot of darkness and a lot of immorality. It's a big town. At this time, about 200,000 people. So it's a big town. Now we're going to examine a church birthed in a riot. Look at verses 2 and 3. According to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. So Paul, when he comes into these towns, and certainly when he comes into Thessalonica, goes right to the synagogue. And he uses the Scriptures. What Scriptures would he be using? He would be using the Jewish Scriptures. He would be using the Old Testament as we would know it. So, Jewish audience, Jewish Scriptures. And if you look at, in the NAS, in verse 3, it says he was explaining and giving evidence. So, he's opening up these Old Testament Scriptures, saying, look at, look at who these point to. I'm going to tell you about the one who they pointed to because he came, and it's Jesus. And he gave evidence of those things. Jesus, he died. Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Showing these mostly, mostly Jewish listeners that their Christ had come. He's testifying to the King of the Kingdom of Light who had come. Now remember, these are people who are in their sin and ensnared to the kingdom of darkness, for the most part. There's some people in there who, who loved the Lord, maybe hadn't heard the Gospel message, and they were faithful Jews just waiting for Messiah. But as the whole, they were in their darkness. 
Verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. So, a group of people in the synagogue believe. Hallelujah! And there's three types of people listed there. Number one are the, the Jews. So people who would know the Old Testament Scriptures and, and God, by His sovereign saving grace, turns the lights on and they believe. A second group is the God-fearing Greeks. What does that mean? Like ESV and some of the other translations say devout men. If you have an NASB, that's literal. A God-fearing Greek was a Gentile who claimed to follow the Jewish God, Jehovah, claimed that the law of Moses was the law of their life, but they didn't get circumcised. If they were circumcised, they'd be a proselyte. But they stopped just short of that. So these are Gentiles who followed the Jewish ways. Then the third group listed in there is the leading women. So, uh, let's, uh, 2012, this is like senators and congressmen and mayors' wives. These are women of important people in the community. Powerful and wealthy. They, they believe. They believe. What do they believe? They believe that they are in need of a salvation that can only be achieved by the Son of God Himself coming and perishing on a cross for them. That's what they believe. Christianity, in one word, is substitution. I can't do it. I need someone to do it for me. Who's qualified to do it for me? Only God Himself. They hear this message and they believe the kingdom of light had broken into Thessalonica. But now we get to see what happens when the kingdom of light breaks into the darkness. Because we get to see just how dark the darkness is and how the darkness responds. So, so learn this. If you're a committed follower of Jesus Christ and you preach the Gospel and God by His grace is willing to save people who hear that Gospel, hallelujah, persecution's coming. Beginning of verse 5. But the Jews becoming jealous. The Gospel message... We've all heard the verse that God's Word never returns void. The Gospel message will have um, one of two primary effects on people. Um, It will either draw or it will harden. There's some people whose consciences are hardened to hear the Gospel. Can they be saved? If the Lord wills for them to be saved, they'll be saved. Amen. God created them. He created that heart that's hardening against them. And if He wants, He could do whatever He pleases because He's God. But here in Thessalonica, the Jews respond by hardening. And that hardening comes out by them being jealous. Their hardening comes from saying, wait, wait a minute. You're telling me that this great king that's going to come died? Not only, only, he didn't didn't die by uh, uh, bravely taking an arrow to the chest in battle trying to overthrow the Roman Empire. He died on a cross? Which if you do any, any... study of of Roman culture was just for what the Romans decided were the dregs of society. And he died on a cross in between two thieves? This is the King? This This is the Messiah that's all over my Old Testament? 
Get out of here with that. Their own wickedness, their own, remember, self-idolatry. So what they're doing is they're taking these things of Messiah in the Old Testament and they're filtering them into what? What benefits me? I want a king that's going to come and, and conquer these Romans. So we will be strong. Really, I will be strong. We will be strong again. We will be important again. I will be important again. We will be important again. And Israel will be great. That's not the message of the kingdom of light. The message of the kingdom of light is a suffering king who out of love lays down his life for his sheep. And this, this message hardens them. Why are they jealous? Why are they jealous? Well, what do we talk about are two of the prime tools of the kingdom of darkness. Power and money. Well, people are leaving the synagogue. And with the leaving of the synagogue are some of those wealthy women. The leading women of the city. So, so the collection basket wasn't quite as full anymore. And they're saying, who, who is this Paul guy coming in and preaching this? He's, he's preaching this, this false suffering Messiah, and because people are responding to that, they're leaving, and the synagogue's not as powerful, we're losing money, and it comes out as jealousy. That's what the kingdom of darkness, that's how the kingdom of darkness responds to the kingdom of light. If you look at, you don't have to do it now, but you can note this in, in, in 1 Thessalonians, Thessalonians 2.5, Paul says this, and, and after studying this, it's making sense now. 1 Thessalonians 2.5, Paul says, For we never came to you with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. Greed. I always wondered, why would he say greed there? Well, we might be able to infer that those hardened Jews are saying to the leading women, He's lying to you. He just wants your money. The kingdom of darkness will stop at nothing to remain in their darkness. Even lie about the kingdom of light. So the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, the clash is made manifest in Thessalonica. Look at the end of verse 5. This is with regards to those jealous Jews that were at the beginning of verse 5. Taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. So the kingdom of darkness and those little individual self-righteous kingdom that make it up were under attack and the response is desperate and dark. These people who are acting here are supposedly the holy Jews. And when their kingdom is under attack, what do they do? They go down to the marketplace. I, I don't know Rockford. I don't know Rockford or Loves Park, or this just gets really confusing to me. But I guarantee there's some places in Rockford that you probably don't want to set foot in because it could be dark. There could be a lot of people practicing wickedness there, lawlessness, rebellion against God committing crimes and doing things that would be unspeakable to keep a pulpit holy to mention them. This is the type of place that the Jews go to to recruit a mob. That's how dark the darkness is. When it's threatened, we lose all, all, all disguises of holiness and we go do whatever we have to do to stop the kingdom of light. If you're a reader of the King James Version, these men are called certain lewd fellows of the baser sort. 
poetic, but these are the dregs of society. And this is who the supposedly holy Jews, those who follow Jehovah, the, those who would, who would affirm the holiness of Jehovah, when the chips are down, they're going to recruit them to help. Then they bring that mob to Jason's house as they think that's where Paul and Timothy and Silas are. Verses 6 and 7. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they are all at contrary to the decrees of Caesar. They're saying that there's another king, Jesus. Even the darkness sometimes speaks the truth. These guys didn't realize how prophetic they were. There is another king, Jesus. But their point, obviously, was to get the Roman authorities all ramped up and bring forth the charge of what they called sedition, treason. Does it sound familiar? What was the Pharisees' charge against Jesus Christ? He claims to be the king! So now we start to understand why Darren read that passage from John 15. Because Jesus warned us about this. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. It says here that these men who have upset the world, you think about the upsetting nature of the Gospel. So at this point... If you look back in history at this time, Christianity by the Roman government was, was accepted as like a subset of Judaism. And they were allowed to operate as long as they didn't cause any trouble in the Roman Empire. Then all of a sudden, here comes the kingdom of light. And the kingdom of light is saying... We have a king, and it's Jesus, the Savior of our souls, the one who erases our debt against the holy God. We worship him alone. That would have an effect on Roman culture, the orderliness of Roman culture, where at the end of the day, your ultimate allegiance belonged to Caesar. That would have a, a world changing a world-changing effect. Can you imagine? Why, why, for the most part, is the modern evangelical church so ineffective? It's because our message and the way we live based on that message isn't turning the world upside down. So, here's an examination point, Christian. Do we fear the loss of our kingdom for the sake of God's kingdom? What were these Jews in Thessalonica giving up? Everything! Family! You're, you're worshiping this Jesus? Get out! I disown you! You're out of the synagogue, which for a Jew in those days was the temple of life. That's where you got employment. That's where you got friends. That's where you had any sort of social life. You were ostracized. Everything that was of value, they willingly gave up to follow the king. That's the gospel call. How willing are we to do that? Or will we follow Jesus just far enough until it costs us something? Don't want, to, don't want to rustle that, that comfortable existence we've constructed for ourselves. And I would argue that we all fear, I think there's a fear in America that persecution's coming. And if the Lord chooses for that to happen, it's right. And it'll be good because all these people who claim to be Christians, when the fire comes, only the true Christians will remain. 
There will be a purifying. But I would argue that even Bible-believing Christians, truly born-again, regenerate followers of Christ, their greatest fear of persecution comes because they're worried about what they're going to lose in the persecution. That's what it is. Well, I'll lose, they'll take my house away from me. They'll take my kids away from me. And we contrast that with Paul who says, if, if they take everything away from me and I still have Christ, that's gain. Is that the view of Christ that you have? Or is Christ just... And I'm going, to use, I'm going to use an illustration from John Piper because I can't do any better. I can say that a lot. Or is Christ just a ticket to get you in? And then after that, I, I, I really don't care about the ticket because I'm in. Or does the ticket, which is Him, get you in to Him? And He is my life. He is my love. He is my hope. And someday He's going to come back and I'm going to be with Him forever and it's going to be joy and it's going to be comfort and it's going to be love and it's going to be worship right next to the Christ who saved me. That's what sustains me. Take whatever you want. And if by taking that it makes Him look great, take it. That's, that is the example of the New Testament. And if that seems ridiculously far away, and I'm pretty far up in that line of where it seems ridiculous. That's the effect that the kingdom of darkness has had on us. So the gospel comes to Thessalonica and the church is birthed in riot, this upheaval. But this riot and upheaval, like we said, because God is sovereign, is perfectly in accord with God's purposes. Before we leave there, because we're going to turn to First Thessalonians, but don't do it yet. I love verse 10. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived there, they hid out in the Motel 6 for three weeks and waited for the heat to pass. No. They go right in again. That's how great Christ is. They know their souls that need to be saved. They are fueled by the fact that a judgment's coming. I love you, fellow human being. And if you fall prey to this judgment without someone to save your soul, it's horrifying. And let me tell you about this Christ who could save you. Because He's glorious. And they go right into the synagogue after being chased out with persecution and riot from the last place. They go right in. It doesn't stop them. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1. So you say, Kip, you, you said that there's purpose in chaos. What are they? Well, I'm going to argue that they're pretty clear in the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to read the first nine verses of First Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm going to kind of focus more on verses 4 through 9. But so, so let's make sure we understand where we are. Everything in context. So Paul, as we just read at the end of that Acts passage, he goes to Berea, then he goes to Athens, then he goes to Corinth. In chapter 3 of First Thessalonians, Paul says that while he was in Athens, he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica. Why? Because Paul's worried about what's going on in Thessalonica. There is chaos going on. There's persecution. The world's been turned upside down and Paul goes. Paul doesn't have time to set up godly elders and set up an elaborate church structure. He's gone. And he sends Timothy back. And says, Timothy, go, go see what's happening. Bring back a report. And Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians, written to Thessalonica, is a response to the positive report Timothy brings back. 
So our question to answer here is what sort of kingdom, kingdom of light, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven purposes has a church birthed in riot and persecution brought forth? Beginning in verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayer, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of God our Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. For our Gospel did not come to you in word only, but in the power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the Word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the Word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need of anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. So purposes... For God allowing a chaotic persecution of a church to give birth to the church, well, it's birth, persecution, growth, begin to come to light. After, after Paul kind of gives his standard greeting, verse 4 says this, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you, the church in Thessalonica, which was born in this riot, can rest assured of God's love for them. And what we see in, their, in the verse here is their election, translated choice in the NAS, is due to God's love for them. So, if you are beloved, elect in God, it's because God loves you. It's not the other way around. That's a crucial theological point. And the huge sustaining grace, if not the most sustaining grace in persecution, is that they are loved by God as a father loves his child. Daily in persecution, they are faced with the question, is that enough? 21st century Christian is God's love is the fact that God loves you enough to save you and to save or to send His Son to pay for your sin to save you. Is that love enough to carry you through whatever you're facing? Do you sit there and say, Amen? when the water's not real deep. At Grace Church of DuPage, grandparent church of this church, I think is how we would say it, we have a family who's walking through real deep water. Um, their two-year-old child has been diagnosed with brain cancer and it's spread Chase is his name. Pray for him. Spread to his spine. Um, and the question that those parents, Bob and Ellie, are faced with, Bob and Ellie Ewald, related to the pools, Ed and Leslie, just if you put it in context, if you've been around for a while, the question that Bob and Ellie are left with is, is the love of God enough? Because by worldly lenses, we're entering in 
to a pretty dark tunnel. Is God's love enough? Boy, here's one of the hardest things to grasp onto when we talk about the differences between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. I'm married. That's the grace of God alone right there. To a wonderful woman. And, And when Melissa and I were courting, I showed my love for her by lavishing her with uh, comfort, Um, however that would look like. Honey, go get a manicure and pedicure. She's like, you never did that. But that's an example. (laughs) The point was, I expressed my love for her by trying to comfort her and make much of her. That's human love. God's love is by bringing Christians into very deep water to the point where everything you trust in other than Him is stripped away from you and then He sustains you through that. And you feel His love. And you feel His grace. And you feel, if you remember my last message here, you feel His nearness. So, God displays His love not like we display love by, by making much of us. Look how great I am. He strips away everything that I hold on to so I can only hold on to Him. And by holding on to Him as my only hope, I'm making much of Him. That's the love God displays. You you have to get that. I know a lot of people who profess to be Christians because they've bought into the message that God wants you to be prosperous and comfortable and when it doesn't come, they jet because they don't understand how God loves His children. Alright, that's important. Might not be the last time I come down on the floor. I don't want you to think that when I'm talking to you on the floor, it's any more important than when I'm talking to you up there. Kind of getting that feeling, but that's not true. It's all important. So we need to build a connection between God's immeasurable electing love and the suffering He allows those He loves to go through. And if that, if that, if that con- contrast of of, of different types of love isn't enough to get smoke coming out of your ears. The greatest display of love, which was the second person of the Trinity, laying aside His glory in heaven to come here to die a sinner's death to purchase you out of the kingdom of darkness... That greatest display of love, that message, is what brings the persecution. That's how dark the darkness is. Let's think like five-year-olds for a second. Some of you guys, not a huge jump. I meant there's younger folks here. I didn't mean the adults. Some of the adults. Thanks. Think about this message. We're doomed. And God made a way for us not to be doomed by God Himself coming here. And if we just believe that He came here and paid for me, I'm not doomed. That message will get you killed. That message will get you killed. You preach that message in parts of uh, Sudan, you'll die that night. That's how dark the kingdom of darkness is. The most beautifully simplistic and glorious message of the world makes people want to kill you. So, 
Paul says God loves you, so He elected you. And Paul brings to light three purposes. Three reasons why he's sure that the Thessalonians that he's writing to have been elected and are loved by God. And these three purposes are brought out clearly in the chaos that erupts from the gospel message. So here are the kingdom purposes of a church born in absolute chaos and riots. Look at the first part of verse 5. Paul says this. Paul says, I am assured of your election, Thessalonians, because our Gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in the power, and also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul is sure that the Thessalonians' election is is true because the Gospel came with the power of the Holy Spirit. If you're witnessing to somebody, it could be somebody at work you've witnessed to for ten years, pray for the Holy Spirit to show up. You can't argue somebody into the Kingdom of Heaven. So, let's say... We're choosing sides. Got a line of ten guys up. And the game is, you're going to go into a synagogue full of Old Testament Scripture-knowing Jews, and you're going to tell them about Christ. I want Paul. I want Paul. A Pharisee of the Pharisees. They didn't know the Scriptures any better than him. And he couldn't argue them into the king. They wanted to kill him. So if you could argue somebody into the kingdom of heaven, Paul could have done it. He was preeminently qualified. But it has to be the work of the Holy Spirit. And and Paul is sure of the Thessalonians' election because this Gospel came in the power of the Holy Spirit. It is only by the Spirit that people will renounce the trappings of the kingdom of darkness and run to the kingdom of light. There is no hope otherwise. And it also says, but in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. That full conviction is the fullness of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit... Remember Jesus said... It's good if I go. His disciples are like, no, you're going to go? What do you mean you're going to go? You can't go. He's like, it's, it's good if I go. The Helper will come. In that John 15 passage. The Holy Spirit comes here. It convicts. It draws. It regenerates. It's He, well, I'm saying it, He sanctifies. He does all those things. And Paul is sure of the Thessalonians' election because he came and did that. And that is borne out in the riot because you couldn't fake it. Here in America, you could fake it. I can come to church every Sunday, Bible in hand, recite verses, and be as dead as a murderer. You'd never know. Because there's no persecution holding me. Somebody professes faith in Central Africa, you better be pretty sure that it's a true profession because they know they could die that night. Not a lot of faking going on there. So kingdom purpose number one in a church birthed in riot is to, to display the power, the Holy Spirit-driven power of the Gospel and the power of the Kingdom. The Gospel coming in full power and the power of the Holy Spirit displays the supreme power of God over the Kingdom of Darkness. So you've got this kingdom of darkness operating. Wealthy, rich, strong men in the kingdom. And here comes some humble, lowly men preaching. And God wins. So it comes in the fullness of the Holy Spirit to prove that God is supreme over the kingdom of darkness.
Another kingdom purpose and reason for Paul's belief that God has graciously chosen the Thessalonians is found at the end of verse 5 and verse 6. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the Word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Part of God's purposing of a riotous birth was so that they would imitate Paul. Remember this Paul? Who's right in the next synagogue? Paul was a joyous sufferer. And Paul ultimately was imitating Christ, the suffering servant, who for the joy, the joy, the joy that was set before him endured the cross. In chapters, in chapter 3, verses 3 and 4 of this letter, Paul says this, For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. He's talking about that persecution. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. I'm just struck by the phrase destined for this. You're suffering persecution because of the Gospel message? You're destined for this! Remember that passage in in John 15, Darren read? The servant is not greater than the Master. If they persecuted Me, they will persecute you. And that is the way God has purposed for the Gospel message to go. Joyous suffering. God's plan is for, in this great battle between two kingdoms, the kingdom of God to spread through suffering. See, the world thinks, and again, we don't experience real persecution here, but the world thinks if I just kill the Christians, stamp them out like ants, I'm going to stop the gospel message. No. It causes it to spread. Spread. Can you imagine those first century Christians who are basically hung up in nets over a lion's den and then lowered down and devoured? And they're singing praises to Jesus Christ? What kind of message did that spread about the greatness of Christ? That's how it spreads. And, and historians say that there was a massive conversion of Romans to Christianity by watching that happen. And then do you notice at the end of verse number 6, it says, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Wait a minute. You're, you're, you're losing everything and you're joyous? The kingdom of darkness... And if you're enslaved to it, you live for stuff. You can't imagine having that stuff taken away from you and you being joyous. But knowing that your soul has been redeemed by God Himself on a cross gives you the joy to rejoice when all the worldly things are taken away from you. Here's an examination point. Do we have such a glorious vision of Christ that when people saw us worshiping our Christ and seeing things taken away from us, they would be astounded? Or would they pity us? So kingdom purpose number two. Why did God allow a church to be birthed in chaos and riot? Is so the Christians could joyfully imitate and glorify the suffering servant. Have you heard the worldly phrase, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery? You've heard that, right? I would argue theologically that imitation is the greatest form of worship, of glorifying. The Holy Spirit, when, it, when He, you see, 
when He indwells the believer, His primary job, and He joyously does this, is to make the believer more like Christ. So, in this church that's birthed in riot, God says, oh, I'll use that riot, because in that riot, these children whom I love and I have elected will imitate Christ in their suffering, and they'll make that Christ look great. Last purpose, verses 7 and 9. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place of your faith toward God has gone forth. So that we have no need to say anything, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. So the joy in persecution as the Gospel comes with full power of the Holy Spirit, allowing believers to imitate Paul in his imitation of Christ, the suffering servant is a witness to all the other churches. Because as the Gospel takes root in all these other places throughout the globe in these times, they're going to suffer the same thing. Remember Paul's words in chapter 3? You were destined for this. It's coming. So the third kingdom purpose is a joyful, persecuted witness to the world. This church, born in a riot and under persecution, joyfully imitating Christ in it, is witness to the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ to all the other churches who are undergoing or will undergo the persecution they're destined for. So, so in this riot, they're like, we're going to stop this Christ thing in the bud Get the Roman officials involved. Let's squash this out. God says, yeah, go ahead, because I want to use that to make Christ look great. That's sovereignty. So what do we take away with this? What do we take from this? i got three takeaways. Three takeaways. Takeaway number one is that we must not be surprised by the clash of kingdoms. Some people are very surprised when the church is persecuted. Some people are very surprised when whatever the sin of the day is, I'm thinking Chick-fil-A at this point, whenever it rises up and shows its darkness, don't be surprised by that. People love their sin. The darkness loves the darkness. Don't be surprised by that. The Gospel message is divisive. Christ said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. The darkness is dark, and the light of the world is bright. So we mustn't be surprised by the clash of kingdoms. Number two, we must not be discouraged by the clash of kingdoms. The kingdom of God with its King, Jesus Christ, and its weapon, the Gospel, has already won the battle. Satan is defeated. He is a defeated foe who hates that he was defeated and will do whatever he can to make uprisings happen and disrupt the spreading of the Gospel, but he's done! If God chooses to put us through hard times, it is not because the battle is lost, get this, but so we can joyfully revel in our ultimate eternal victory of our soul in those times. Because He loves us, Christian. So we mustn't be discouraged by the clash of kingdoms. Last one. We mustn't be afraid by the clash of kingdoms. 
Even if we were to lose everything and still have Christ at the end of the day, that's gain. We should live recklessly within the confines of what Scripture says. But we shouldn't be living for this. We should know that our hope is coming. And I'm willing to lose all of this to gain more of Him. But I also know that there's a fear from our remaining sin of wanting to be the God and what this kingdom of darkness has constructed to make you fearful. We shouldn't be afraid. Live sacrificially and recklessly. Love people who are really hard to love. Take a chance with your money. Do some things where people are like, what are you doing? That's going to affect your 401k. How can you do that? Don't be afraid. Because God loves you. Our gain is eternal. So Christian, if persecution and trial comes upon you, rejoice. Because it's a sign that God loves you. Pray with me. Father, that is rejoicing when our, our comforts are shaken. Rejoicing when we're knocked off the throne of our own self-righteousness, Father. These are things that are only done by the grace You display through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray now, Father, that the Spirit grants us that grace to get such a vision of Christ that we are willing to lay everything down in this world for the sake of gaining more of Him. And Lord, that You would respond by empowering us and sustaining us through the trials and tribulations we face as we exist in the kingdom of darkness. And I pray You get much glory from this body. Much glory. And the kingdom spreads because of their witness to the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the King of the kingdom of light. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.